welcome back to the Eyes Up Life podcast. I'm Ben Grannis. I'm happy you're here, and I'm excited to share with you a special edition episode of the Eyes Up Life podcast. Today, we have Ted King. Ted King, professional cyclist, professional dad, professional awesome guy. Those last two were made up, but Ted is an awesome guy, and he is a father and a husband and so many other things. Ted has had an incredible cycling career. He is just uh, really unbelievable in his fitness, his ability to push himself, his mental capacity, and I have admired his athletic endeavors for quite some time now. He's really involved in getting his fan base and community involved and excited about bikes and Somehow, I was able to set up this interview with Ted at his home in Vermont. It was kind of wild. I was in Boston for a conference back in December 2022. I drove up to the Burlington area on Sunday morning after the conference, hung around until Ted was available, and then talked to Ted for an hour and then drove home. It was kind of a long day, but it was really, uh, really exciting to, to meet Ted and see all of his bikes, talk about bikes, hang out, meet his wife and kids, and just have a good time. So this is an exciting one for me to share with you all, and hopefully marks the end of my fundraising, which means that I've reached my goal. Congratulations to you all for supporting Eyes Up and Text Less Live More through your financial contributions to fight distracted driving. And that's what Eyes Up is all about. Eyes Up started as a 7,000 mile bike ride around the United States to raise awareness for distracted driving, to promote digital wellness, just to help people live healthier, happier, safer lives by putting the phone down more and more and living eyes up in real time. So this is a different episode than what you're used to, which is the Eyes Up Maxis series. Those are still on regularly scheduled programming, but this is an exciting one because it really is uh, someone that I've looked up to since I've started cycling more seriously. And I know anyone who's a bike fan knows who Ted King is, so that's also kind of cool uh, to be sharing a conversation that I had with Ted. And also, there's a video going alongside this. I'm not sure if it's coming out before, after, or during this release, so check that out. Stay tuned to Eyes Up Ride on Instagram. Check it out. And without further ado, Ted King. Enjoy. I am Ted King. I'm a professional cyclist of some sort or another. Uh, yeah. Where are you from? Born and raised in New Hampshire. As I sit and talk to you now, we're in Vermont, which is my home state. So walk me through and walk a bunch of people who probably don't know much about you yeah. th through briefly, if you can, your career and where you're at now. Yeah, so I grew up playing what I call traditional New England sports, uh, largely a lot of time on snow, a lot of skiing, a lot of hockey, and then went off to college, which right here in Vermont, um, went off to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do from that point athletically. I figured I would pursue academics, much like you're presumably meant to do in college, and my brother, who is three years my senior, 
was racing a collegiate national championship just down the road, hosted by University of Vermont. And I was at Middlebury College. I went out and watched uh, a portion of the race and went back to campus and didn't think much of it. My brother went on to win that race, which was one of three collegiate national titles that he won. Um, so as I'm at the sort of crossroads of life, I was, I was thinking maybe I should get into cycling. And I did, which resulted in, my, part of the thinking was I have a lot of hand-me-downs and I probably share some genetic genes that would be uh, to my advantage, seeing that he's having success and I wanted to be successful. So got into cycling here in Vermont. Um, raced, graduated from college, began bike racing uh, at a professional level straight from there. Um, I, I say that cycling and professional soccer share a lot of similarities. Like we have a professional league in cycling and in soccer here in the United States, but the big leagues are overseas. So I did three years racing domestically and then uh, caught the attention of the right people and got basically recruited to go race overseas and raced for seven years uh, at the highest level. You know, raced, I say name a bike race and I've done it. Uh, Giro d'Italia, Tour de France, Paris-Roubaix, so on and so forth. And at the end of the 2015 season, that was 10 years pro, and I said, you know what, I kind of want something different. And so I thought I was stepping away from cycling in a, in a much bigger variety, in a much bigger way than I ended up doing. But that professional road career has sort of segued to ambassadorship and, and unintentionally uh, a whole lot of gravel riding and racing, which takes place these days. So can you talk a little bit about what those big races were like overseas. How did you prepare for them? What was the, what was the actual racing like yeah. and how did you do? Uh, I mean, the big leagues are the big leagues, you know, the, the Tour de France is the pinnacle. Um, and it feels like a whole different ball game than every other race we've done previously. And we race a lot. I mean, in any given year, you're racing probably 50 to 80 race days. And you tally those up so many because you might do 10 consecutive days of racing in a particular stage race or a grand tour is three straight weeks of racing. So you're racing from January, uh, in tour of San Luis or tour down under, you know, basically seeking warm climates, then back to Europe for freezing cold spring classics. Uh, I race like tour of Flanders, which is a, probably the biggest one day race in the world. There's you, you race by literally a million people on the side of the road. Like that's, you just feel it. That energy is tangible. Um, so it's all of these races that are leading up to, if you're on the roster, uh, the, the racing Grand Tour, racing the Tour de France. So logistically, you know, I'm on a team of anywhere from 25 to 30 riders. And that means you sign your contract with a team, much like you would any other professional sports team, and you therefore use that team's equipment, that bike, the clothing sponsor, the helmet sponsor, so on and so forth. And it's that team's job to pick presumably the best eight at this point, nine, uh, they've changed it down to eight now, riders for the particular race, be it a Grand Tour, be it a one-day classic, so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's lining up the Tour de France, for example, That's it's something that I've, at that point, put not my entire life behind, but the previous decade or more leading into that race. Uh, when I say not my, my entire life, because getting into college, cycling in college was relatively late but it's wild, man. It's loud. It's fun. It's crazy. It's hectic. It is super hectic. Uh, I actually didn't finish the two Tour de France's Tours de France that I raced because it, I was I succumbed to too many crashes, a couple of too, too many broken bones, uh, which is heartbreaking. But I don't know. Not everybody who races like professionally even makes it to the tour. So 
get to apparently hang my hat on that. What's like a, when you were training at <clears throat> professional road cycling, what was like a normal day or a week, maybe a week makes more sense? Yeah. Um, when you are a professional cyclist, every moment of every day for all intents and purposes revolves around performance. Uh, I don't, in general, I don't sleep in, but you're trying to gain as much sleep as possible because sleep is one of the best performance enhancing things you can do. Wake up, breakfast, do some stretching, do some yoga, do some core strength. Um, probably, well, not for sure. You already know what your training is going to look like based on a training program that you, you correspond with the team, either team or your individual coach about. So it might be an easy hour, hour and a half spin, or maybe you have a five or six hour long endurance ride. Um, that could be peppered with uh, intervals of all kind, um, or it could just be like, you know, do a six hour endurance ride. Um, hopefully, presumably, not always, not hopefully. Uh, it doesn't hurt to have buddies who you're training with. Um, I was living in Girona for most of my career, which is a cool cycling town north of Barcelona in Spain. And, you know, you pick a place by having good weather, probably an airport nearby and some sort of social outlet. And, you know, a town like Toronto definitely has all those things. So you've, you've hooked up with your buddies. You, you say you're gonna go out for this ride. You maybe do the whole ride together, maybe do a portion of it together. Come back home. Immediately, uh, the next best performance enhancing thing is replenish your glycogen stores, or at least that's what every sports nutritionist will tell you. So, I mean, have some sort of lunch, uh, rest. It wasn't much of a napper, but rest, lay low. I mean. You, you're also living independently while training as opposed to being at races where the team caters to you. So, you know, do some chores, do some grocery shopping, uh, whatever you need to do, and then have dinner, rest to repeat. Like, it's, it's fun, especially in hindsight, just because life was so simple. Uh, and it's also, I mean, I guess at the moment it's also, it's pretty crude and pretty, uh, not crude, it's pretty rudimentary, it's, it's simple eat sleep ride what was from that part of your career what was your proudest moment oh gosh i think because because i got into cycling late i never had any aspirations from the very beginning i need to make it to europe i need to to race a grand tour i need to do anything i mean when i when i was a senior in college and i my friends were applying to jobs i was literally applying to professional cycling teams and even having that first contract was unexpected so you know and then I had success in America and I was the number one ranked rider and that's what brought me to, to Europe it was always these doors perpetually opening um, and then you know you come to a crossroads and you come to this open door and say yeah I guess this is kind of a risk but I want to take it so the punchline being I never expected to race the Tour de France to answer the question what was I most proud of I think it was probably lining up at the tour um, it's just, it's, it's a culmination of so much hard work and dedication. Like I said, not everybody's, there, there's no guarantees you're going to make it there. And it's just, it's all of a sudden all eyes are on you in the cycling world and beyond. It's like, it just validated everything I'd done for the previous decade and a half. And so what, what year did you retire and what was, what's been the transition to where you are now? Like, you know, when I say a decade and a half, that was incorrect and way off. Uh, I retired... I decided after 10 years that at the age of 32, I was, I had, I'd experienced everything I wanted to do. I'd traveled the world. I'd done the world's biggest races. I'd raced for Peter Sagan for 
four straight years and he was the winningest rider on the planet and I was basically doing every race that he did. So that was my penultimate year. It was my last year with Peter and then I'm sort of on a uh, young upstart squad that was that was seeking much more. I was seeking improvement and so basically we're not on the podium very often and it's like, you know what, like what is my next goal? As a as a domestique, you're, you don't seek the acclaim. It's almost like being a lineman on, on a football team. You know, it's like you do the hard work and then your hero goes and wins the race and then we slowly trot on and finish the race a few minutes later. Um, so at the age of 32, I said, okay, I, I love cycling. I've seen a lot of my uh, colleagues from professional cycling step away from, from the sport and hate it because they didn't get a contract. They, they ended their career injured. They didn't get a contract for that reason. Uh, and I still loved riding a bike and I didn't want to lose that. And so I... Uh, beginning with Cannondale, they had said sometime in the previous two or three years of my career, they said, when you want to step away from cycling, we'll, we'll be there to support you. And I had no idea what that meant. I mean, in my mind, that meant if I'm going to open a bike shop, they would help sell bikes. And so I thought, okay, I don't really want to open a bike shop. That's very kind. Thank you, Cannondale. But then come to the crossroads of retiring, it, the the proposition presented itself to become an ambassador for cycling. And, and at that point, gravel really wasn't a sport. Uh, which is now it's the most booming aspect of, of what's happening in cycling. So it was to work with R&D. It was to do a lot of social projects. It's to go to product launches. It's go to store openings. It's, it's create rides. It's create DIY gravel. It's do crazy stuff on New Year's Eve. It's on the bike. <laughs> crazy stuff on New Year's Eve. Just get wild. Uh, I mean, like, perpetuate the stoke of riding the bike because I think what what worked to my advantage all through my career very unintentionally was I was very transparent about what professional cycling was through social media and so then when it came time to retire so to speak from the world tour uh these sponsors beginning with Cannondale and then a whole handful more said hey let's let's support you and see where this goes and that's what career 2.0 has been so how has it been you know it's it's probably a much more relaxed life no, <laughs> that's, uh, no, I, I shouldn't shake my head. Finish your question. <laughs> no, yeah, well, well, I guess what I, there's, it's probably busy in a different way. Your life yeah. is still heavy, revolving around training, but it's not. Right. I, I imagine it's not twenty four seven. So what is it? That refrigerator is full of beer. <laughs> in a previous lifetime, I would swear off beer for six months a year, and and I mean it's just because you're a robot. When you're racing the world tour, like I said, you eat, sleep. Ride, eat, sleep, race. I joke that life is much more hectic now because you, I need to be a serial entrepreneur. Um, I'm with each contract, with each sponsor. I I want to outwork myself as much as I want to outwork my fellow privateers, so that those sponsors are very happy at, with me at the end of the year when it comes contract time. Um. As, a, as any kind of entrepreneur, you know, the work is never done. So, you know, also now with two little kids at home, that makes things quite a bit more exciting. Uh, so it's like, it's wake up early. It's get a f an hour of work done at 5 a.m. before the kids get up, and then it's take care of the kids. And then uh, now it, I call training catches catch can. It's like if, if, if I see that the weather's good and I have an hour, then I'll go take advantage of that. If the weather's 
crappy and I have an hour, I'll ride the trainer. If the weather is good and I've got three hours, then I'll go, I'll go ride for three hours. Um, with the balance of everything else I need to do, you know, like I said, sponsor obligations. Uh, I do a bit of coaching on the side. Uh, I do, I co-own a sports nutrition company called Untapped. I do a whole handful of other things that are just impossible while you are purely laser focused racing the world tour. So it's a mix of busier and less busy. What are, what's the one thing or one, what's one thing that stands out to you that kept you going when you were racing the world tour and training for it? And what's one thing now that keeps you motivated to do the millions of things that you have going on at once? When you are a professional cyclist, racing on a world tour team is self-motivating and self-perpetuating. It's like you want to do better. You want to train better, you want to be faster, you want to be, have a better result. I mean, basically, because the whole sport revolves around suffering, you, you want to suffer less long. If you are the one instigating the suffering, if you're at the front of the race, if you're kicking butt, like, that means you are doing well and making other people suffer, suffer more. So, the, the self-perpetuation is what got me up and out the door every day. Uh, being able to race and ride a bike at the highest level is just, it's such a cool... Um, such a cool place to be and again having never anticipated or expected it it just it worked really well as a place i wanted to be fast forward to the present and it's it's this crazy everyday hustle and i think it's the it's having a family and wanting to be a a uh, provider is a huge point of purpose in every day and so whether that is training whether that is traveling to an event, whether that is selling untapped, whether that is coaching, whether that is staying up late and waking up early in order to fit it all in. It's, it's showing my kids hard work and then being able to provide for my family. What's, what was the biggest setback for you during your career and how'd you get through it? Um, you know, injuries are, I would, I would say inevitable. Crashes are inevitable. Um, the number you take and how hard they are are that's what's buried and I took some surgery really hard crashes uh I think probably the biggest setback was literally not finishing the tour uh stage one of the tour 2013 we're working for Saga and it's a sprint stage we can very likely end up in in the yellow jersey that stage and probably with 10k to go there's a pile up and I get caught behind it caught straight in it and that resulted in a broken scapula which we didn't discover for another week because I soldiered through for another three days then it was time cut uh, on stage three, stage four, stage three. Uh, if you look up the hashtag let Ted ride, that'll explain some of it. Uh, the, the UCI ASO unceremoniously asked, you know, they say the word unceremoniously. It was very ceremonious the way they, they asked me not to race the next day. Where, that's where the, the sport of cycling has so many sort of funny unwritten rules and you can nudge a person in who's, who's past the time cut. Anyway, I didn't finish time cut on a particularly tip, difficult team time trial, which as a result, I wasn't able to finish racing. That was the biggest setback. How did I rebound from that? It was the next day. I was walking around France. My parents had just arrived to the race. Uh, my dad had a, let me backtrack. My dad had a stroke. He had a brain injury in 2003. And as a result, it was very difficult for them to travel two races. Like that was the first race they ever went to Europe to watch me participate in and and 
So I'm, I'm trying to lick my wounds. I'm trying to not feel bad for myself as my parents made this trip. Uh, and then I pick up the newspaper. It was the International Herald Tribune, which is, you know, good international newspaper. And it, it, it was just like the whole front page was covered in war and strife and famine and all these terrible things. And there I am being like, oh my gosh, I can't race the Tour de France. I think that put it all in perspective real, real darn quick. So you are a sponsored athlete, a professional athlete. There's naturally, in this the, way, the world that we live in, a lot of publicity that comes from social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about your experience with it, because you've seen, you've been part of this athlete pool mm -hmm. from before it was really a thing to now where it's everything. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's been that like? What's that been like? Um, I call myself, without trying to put a, a feather in my cap, I was an early adopter to a lot of social media. Uh, I was on Twitter in 2009. I was on Facebook. When Facebook was meant as a social manual Facebook to know that girl in your Spanish class, which was introduced to a lot of small liberal arts schools in college. I mean, I, I think I was probably in the first, I don't know what, 10,000 users of Facebook. Um, Strava, same story that was started down the road. I mean, Strava for all intents and purposes is a social media platform. I was really early with them. Uh, Instagram, same story. I don't do TikTok. <laughs> I don't do some of the others. My sister in law. Not yet, anyways. My sister in law works for Snapchat. I should take that back. I have a TikTok account. I've never opened it beyond creating the account. Someone told me it's important. Where my point is, I think in, in especially using these social media platforms over an arc of time, you see the good, which certainly goes in tandem with the bad. Um, there are some that are incredibly positive. I think Strava is an incredibly positive social media platform. People are there who are largely stoked on your bike ride or ask curious, insightful questions on training or nutrition or routes or what have you. Um, I think Instagram is a is an advertising platform, and I think if... if you hear why any of these things were created they're all meant for advertising what's like your day-to-day -day, like consumption versus content creation <laughs> i i like to say that i'm a producer not a consumer which is not 100 percent accurate i mean yes you will find me scrolling through social media as much as the next person i shouldn't say as much as the next person because i really really try hard to cap it at a couple seconds or a couple minutes. Um, yeah, I mean, as a result of working with the companies with, with whom I work, it, part of the job is to put things on social media. Um, and so that part is the production part. And it's, it, it, it's in general, producing the idea that bike riding is really fun. And so as much as you, you say that social media is life through rose-colored glasses, I mean, that's, that is a big portion of it. I put my injuries on there, so it's not all sunshine and cinnamon. Um, it's it's a big mix of what's good, what's bad, and everything in between. What's some advice you would offer to people, particularly young people who... Yeah, advice for a young person who, or anyone generally, but particularly young people who are caught up in more of the consumption side of things. Because most people, they're producing, but they're, they're not producing for as 
like a, a contract. Part of their job. You know? Yeah, right, exactly. So someone who's more, yeah, caught up in the scrolling and they spend hours a day <clears throat> dealing with the, the, the vortex. Ah, uh, man. I mean, I think study after study goes to show the negative effects of social media, the, the depression that results, the online bullying, the, the politization, and, and the, the, the mindlessness that is the politics of social media. Um, I mean, I think it's as simple, it is as simple as deleting the app, and I think that's powerful, and I think that makes a great statement, and I've never seen, <laughs> you see a lot of people post, hey, I've just taken a month-long or week-long or year-long reprieve from social media, which I'm laughing because it's funny because then they get back on. But presumably they've learned something in that time and they always come back saying it was a positive experience. So, you know, what is, I think, uh, an unending pause to social media could be a very good thing. I mean, to see the world around you uh, is invaluable. I, I really try hard to to not be using my phone and not be using technology with two little kids upstairs. I mean, they, they consume everything we do. It's funny, our daughter walks around with anything as if it's a phone in her ear, which is hilarious because I, who talks with their phone? I don't talk anymore on my phone. Like, I feel like we live in such a world of text. So when she first did that, I'm like, how do you even know what that is? Which goes to show, I mean, A, I'm, I'm far from perfect, and B, kids, they just absorb, they absorb your, your, traits and movements and actions and yeah it's like looking into a very strong self-reflective mirror i don't know i don't the social media is far from the be-all end-all um it is a portion of what i do i like nothing more in terms of perpetuating the happiness of a bike riding than being on a group ride hosting group rides doing things face to face and that is something that i would make me very happy if social media went away it seems like it's unrealistic that it will go away at least soon you're someone who is fortunate enough to know and appreciate how good being outside is mm -hmm. and i am also a believer in getting outside mm -hmm. for health and mental health mm -hmm. health generally um what's what's a step that we can all take to spend more time doing something that we love or getting outside um, I, I mean, it's, it is, it is difficult. You need to make the conscious decision to say, I'm going to put my phone down and go outside. I mean, the endorphins that I seek and, and, and receive from riding a bike far exceed what I'm going to tweet or get in a death scroll. So I realize that is a lot easier said than done. If it is pouring rain and it is 37 degrees, I'm still probably more inclined to get on my bike than go scroll social media. And that's because it is part of my, my, it's probably part of my DNA at this point. Um, but it is, it still is a, it's a decision and it's something that, that gives me happiness. I think the world would be a better place if more people got outside, sought those endorphins, turned away from the screen. We're aware of, of pedestrian and two-wheeled traffic and I mean, just literally make the world a better place. As a parent, a fairly recent parent, how, how does your understanding of the effects of phones and social media impact your parenting? 
Um, great question. Yeah, we, my wife and I, made a very conscientious decision to, to limit technology in a really big way to our kids, um, which. Let me think. Um, we we allow social no we allow screen time when it comes to FaceTime with family so, you know talking to grandparents talking to family members um, and what I actually think is really cool about phones is you have thousands or tens of thousands of photos in there and so my daughter might be two and a half but she has scrolled back through so many photos of her life and so when she is now two and a half looking at a photo of the time that she was four months old visiting her grandparents in Seattle, she talks about it and she talks in detail about that visit. And does she actually have the memory or is it the social, uh, the, the construct of, of that photo and us echoing the, the story? I think that's really cool. I mean, who knows which one it is, but there are so many pieces of that that she loves and remembers and talks about. So we do allow her to look through uh, images and videos. Uh, Travel time, I uh, would be a fool if I didn't say that we, we give our kids limited time on an iPad when we're on an airplane. And that is thankfully about it. Um, kids are, there's something mesmerizing about a, a neon screen. I mean, like our, our six month old, well just, we don't have a TV in the house and, and so if there's a screen on our hands, like, He's looking at it. You don't have a single TV in your house. That's a lie. We have a TV. But we don't, I don't, I bet it hasn't been on in eight months. You effectively don't have a TV. For all intents and purposes. Some people have the TV on all day. Correct. Correct. Um, so you're obviously a cyclist. Um, talk to me about your experience with distracted drivers and just road use as a driver and a cyclist. Yeah, there's, there are a few things that make me angrier than when a vehicle goes by in either direction and I see that the person is on the phone because basically I feel like I'm, I'm lucky in that instance. Um, I'm at a point on my bicycle that I have a rear Garmin radar so that warns me on my cycling computer in front of me there is a radar out back that tells me when a car is coming so I'm hyper aware. I mean I have good hearing and I can generally hear it and so I'll pay even more attention to be as far right as possible, but I'm just, I'm very aware of that. I have a bike that has a mirror on it for the same reason. Uh, five years ago, I wouldn't be caught dead with either of those things. And no, I didn't mean to use that term, but I, I, I feel naked if I don't have them now. Uh, I enjoy driving in particular, I mean, I enjoy riding my bike in particularly sinuous roads or roads that have little to no cell reception because then I know that the person is probably not on the phone. Um, yeah, it is an inevitable danger. A bike has the same rights to the road as a car, as a truck. <laughs> roads were originally designed for bicycles. The bicycle has been around longer than cars, so. Go figure when you're getting yelled at, you don't belong on this road. Well, actually, we do. And yes, we do pay our taxes, and that's a moot point anyway. Um, yeah, we live in a very addicted to, to technology age. And it's, it's scary. A big 
a big reason we have moved to Vermont is we love riding our bikes and we are away from the, the crazy scrum of traffic that, that we experienced when we were living in California. Uh, I don't know. Have you had any close calls with cars? Not really. Uh, I mean, yes. I feel like more often than not, if a car is going to buzz you, they're doing that intentionally. Because uh, it's often when the mirror is this far away from you and the horn is blaring. But take that for what it is. Uh, no, I mean, I, I see and hear horror stories all the time. Uh, I follow a... <laughs> A, someone called Cycling Lawyer, Cyclist Lawyer on Instagram, and she does a terrific job protecting and helping folks who have been, you know, involved in, in vehicular accidents. And it's too often. One is too many, so. Do you know anyone, like, do you have any close friends or anyone who's been hit or affected by a car or distracted driving that you know of? Thank God, no. No. That's pretty impressive. And I know. I assume, I mean, the answer is probably yes, but there's no one that I can be like, ah, right. that person in this instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I feel like, I feel like my, when I have heard of it or seen it, it's, it's social media or the news where someone, some teen is making some poor decision and then gets off with a slap on the wrist. I drove by someone today on my way here who had a, I don't know if it was a map or something, but a large document fully on the steering wheel yeah. and on the phone. Nice. On the highway. Maybe they were doing their crossword puzzle. And they yeah, were calling up their right friend asking the clue. Uh, I mean, we just, as a, as a humanity, as a species, in a modern age, we are trying to do more. I listened to, to a sermon at church yesterday where they talked about, I think the year was, in the 1960s, there was a study that, that said, based on technological advances in the year 1985, we will be working 22-hour work weeks, and uh, I think they said work four days a week. Point being, because of technology being so helpful, we're going to be that much more productive and then therefore have all this free time. But as a result of especially social media and technology in general, we occupy that time with, with time on our phones or time death scrolling or, or time that's basically just wasted. So maybe we do literally work a 22-hour week when you really boil it down. Uh, but the point being, we're just, we want to always be doing something. We want to, it, it's rare you just get to sit back and relax. It's rare that, so the challenge was, Get in the longest line at the grocery store. Drive the speed limit. Like, do something where you don't feel perpetually rushed. Those things, which sound so basic, are really big challenges. Like, to drive the speed limit, gosh, that's easier said than done. Um, I mean, I'm no different. I, I've got a lot to do. I feel like every day my to-do list starts this long and ends up this long. And start the next day and try to, try to chip away at it. And then it just gets longer. So I, I, I get it. I'm far from invincible or immune to it. What's your approach to distractions in the car? Um, I, I like that the new iPhones come with the app that say, hey, I'm driving. I mean, turning that on is really nice. Uh, so have you been using that? I, I in, 
yeah, I don't know how often, probably more often than not. Um, when we had kids, we know that those kids are watching. So just, it takes the conscientious decision, but say, I don't want to do that. I don't, having a, a dashboard mount helps so that the only thing I really need to do is look at a map. Um, pulling over on the side of the road is something that will enhance your rush ultimately, but is a safer alternative. And I do that a whole handful of times. Uh, I mean, much like making the conscientious decision to go outside instead of getting on your phone, it's the same kind of decision. It's a, it is a decision that, that goes on up here, goes on here. I mean, it's on your heart, you know, that it's, it's super gosh darn important not to be on your phone. What would you say to someone who, to try to get through to them, someone who, like that woman I described, fully distracted, mm -hmm. someone who just does, does not get, maybe doesn't appreciate what it's like to be another user of the road or just hasn't had a close call or knows someone affected? Man, I wouldn't even... I don't know. I mean, there were a handful of commercials not too long ago where they show just how... They were impactful. The, in an instant, how quickly an accident can happen uh, with distraction. I think it's a woman who's on her phone, not to be judging women. Maybe it was a guy on her phone. There's a kid in the back seat. Kid's crying. Looks down at the phone. Next thing they know, they show a slow motion crash, which looks, you know, it's catastrophic. Uh, as strange as a commercial sounds, so sort of glancing and superficial. Seeing something like that can be and hopefully has been impactful. I don't know what I would say to somebody who is doing a crossword puzzle while they're on the phone. It's, I feel like these are the arguments that as cyclists are, are next to impossible to win and not to be defeatist, but it's like any argument you'll get in while you're on a bike and a, and a car goes by laying on the horn. If that car lays on their horn and there's a stop sign or, or four-way intersection and the traffic light, 100 yards ahead, and we stop together. Like, if you're going to have a conversation, 99% of the time it's going to end up in yelling. Maybe 1% of the time you could have a conversation that doesn't begin with flicking the person off. It is, look, I am a human being. I have the same right to be here. Chill the F out. I mean, my, yeah, my temperature rises too when these things happen, so... I mean, how does it feel? Because you've, you've ridden all over the world and so many other countries, particularly in Northern Europe, it seems, there is so much respect and accommodations with infrastructure and by motorists mm -hmm. for cyclists. And then here, it seems, I mean, there's, there are, there's certainly a lot of progress being made in, in a handful of cities, but by and large, there aren't. Yeah, I mean, I think... You're right. In Europe, cycling is more well-received, more well-respected, more understood, more part of general infrastructure. Like, if you live a half mile from the nearest grocery store, chances are you're not going to get in a car to go down there. Like, bikes are part of the infrastructure. We live in a, especially modern society, very uh, distant land. And as a result, cars are mandatory. I mean, you're not going to ride your bike 20 miles to go to the grocery store to get a, a gallon of milk 
we just we live more distant from downtowns than than a lot of places changing that and changing the whole ideology of of an american person living in this society is i i again i don't want to sound defeated but i don't know how to even begin to have that conversation i think so instead of trying to have that conversation it's i would i would prefer to lead with my actions gravel cycling is the most gravitating side of cycling that we've ever seen it's it's better than criteriums and grand fondos and road racing and mountain bike racing and cyclocross racing it is it is putting people on bikes so many more people on bikes that would never be on a bike otherwise and it's it's that understanding it's it's seeing how dangerous roads are it's maybe uncle joe has just gotten into gravel riding and niece sarah all of a sudden has an appreciation for for cyclists in general because she's looking up to uncle joe you know it's it's that is the most minuscule drop in the bucket that we can that i can do but i feel like that is more impactful than trying to <laughs> bark at people on social media which i see a lot of people doing license plate 419783 that person buzzed me at the light today it's like that sucks. I'm sorry. I don't know how that is going to help anything. Right. It's it's, it's just as productive as the driver yelling at the cyclist. It's right. What's it going to do? Yeah. Two middle fingers in the air. Right. Right. Doesn't add up to a positive. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I've I've talked to a lot of people who have either fully or partially moved away from road riding because of the roads feeling unsafe or knowing someone who was killed on the road. Um, what's like what keeps you riding on the road because i know you, you don't ride entirely on gravel correct no i still i mean the majority of my miles are done on the road uh i am a very firm believer in riding to the furthest right as possible it blows me away how many cyclists ride weave in and out and ride closer to the yellow line than the white line like good bike etiquette will serve you very well especially well i'm gonna say especially riding in groups i mean yeah, strength in numbers and you have a bigger mass on the road, but you just... Cyclists drive me crazy in equal numbers as motorists. Um, so any tips that you would offer to... Like... Just ride to the friggin' right. Like, I don't know why people don't ride to the right. It's crazy. It, it drives me bonkers. Uh, certainly not every road has, has shoulders. Where you are in Connecticut, shoulders have never... They're not heard of. even part of the conversation. Exactly. Like, what, what is that? Uh, being a conscientious, positive, smart citizen of the road will 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 help out tremendously. And by that, I mean ride to the right. Use hand signals to point out so that motorists know what you are going to do. Follow the rules of the road. Don't blaze through stop signs. Don't blaze through through red lights. Uh, communicating, say, saying thank you. I think that, that goes tremendously far. There are so many times you will approach a four-way intersection. You get there after other cars. The cars sort of assume you're going to blow the intersection, so they wave you through. I say, no, I'm going to wave you through because you were there first. This is your spot, and I'm, I'm an equal citizen of this, <laughs> of this road. I think, I think that behavior goes, goes far. Um, the, the technology and 
just pieces of equipment to your advantage. Uh, like I said, that Garmin radar I think is really helpful. Um, uh, mirrors are helpful. Lights are helpful. I mean, it's amazing how powerful these these strobe lights are. Uh, yeah, just be visible. Be visible. Be respectful. Yeah, visible, respectful. It doesn't hurt that a lot of these new pieces of equipment have cameras in them. So yeah, unfortunately, the benefit of a camera is typically in the aftermath. But if every vehicle knew that every bicycle had a camera on it, cars would act one heck of a lot differently. What's some advice you would offer to a young person hoping to follow their dream, but pressures from their surrounding environment, people at school, parents, etc., are pushing them in the opposite. Not necessarily becoming a pro cyclist, but something that's counter to what they're being told they should do. What are they being told they're supposed to do? Well, just something like, say their teachers are telling them to get a job in finance because they're good at math, but they want to become a photographer or something. Well, my dad was a very successful orthopedic surgeon and he worked really, really hard. And he worked 25 years without taking a sick day. And then he suffered a stroke at the age of 57, which has nothing to do with being a stressed out job. He was a wonderful father and a very relaxed human being and very fit, ran four or five days a week. Um, but watching how quickly his a rug was pulled out from under him when that happened to him, that opened up doors in my mind of places that I could go on a bike. I studied economics and probably a future in finance was what, what the script was being told for me, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So in combination of seeing what happened to my dad and living in the age in which we lived, it allowed me to say, I want to ride a bike. I want to race a bike. I mean, I... I had set a foundation so that it was potentially a viable future. If I went five years down the road and I was still making no money, I would probably go back to that finance background or, or you know, have some other backup plan. But, you know, I think you, you see the overall point. Follow your dream because you never know where life is going to take you. It doesn't hurt to do your homework beforehand and figure out some of the steps that are going to allow you success. It doesn't hurt to have a backup plan, to have a parachute option. But... Goodness gracious, as I turn 40 in a month and a half, I'll tell you, life goes quick. Closing thoughts, Ted. Reflections, thoughts, comments. I hope the furnace doesn't turn on in the next few seconds. It might. Um, <laughs> ride your bike. Riding your bike is better for you. It's better for society. It lowers stress. It reduces traffic. It if everybody woke up and did 15 minutes of exercise or 30 minutes of exercise, you could touch your toes or you could get on a bike. That sense of freedom is immeasurable. I like going for a jog, but what I really like about bike riding is in five minutes, I can cover the same distance that I covered over the course of my jog. The bike is a tool. I mean, there's a reason that kids of any age get on a bike and once they learn, they're just, their world is freedom. And that, that is something that I think adults forget I think people forget through their teens or in their early 20s and then into adulthood. Gravel cycling is a great avenue right now for people any of all ages, whether you're new to cycling entirely. So I'm not 
as much as I'm saying, folks, you should get into cycling, like any sort of avenue that has those those athletic endorphins are, are so much better for the world at large. So, And way more powerful than the ones you get from using your phone. <laughs> By a factor of a million. Yeah. Your future staring at social media is a downward trajectory. The future of getting into any kind of athletic pursuit is, is nothing but up. I like that. Boom. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to that conversation I had with Ted King back in December 2022. Ted, having biked so, so many miles in his life, has a mature perspective on distracted driving and social media and all of those things that we are talking about here on the Eyes Up Life podcast. I believe that his perspective is helpful for a lot of people, and I hope that it was helpful for you to hear his thoughts. Also to hear a little bit more about his career from the perspective of someone who is familiar with professional cycling, but not as super devoted as a fan as some other cycling people are, which is me. I don't follow professional cycling avidly, but I do know who some of the pro cyclists are. So that's kind of where I was coming from with this conversation to get a little bit of a more average Joe perspective on what his career is. Thank you for listening to Ted and I talk. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the Eyes Up Life podcast and stay tuned for regularly scheduled Maxis Tires episodes coming out regularly through October 2023. We'll look forward to having you back here listening in. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.